Hello, welcome. Welcome to this Alpha Bunga Bunga Reading Club. This is Alex, Georgian Filler here. Today we're discussing Michal Kaletsky's landmark essay on the political consequences of full employment. Uh, welcome to all the new patrons who've joined us. Um, those of you who have been with us for a while know that we've been up till now announcing the reading clubs uh, with a month in advance, but now we've changed the, the scheme. We're announcing them for the forthcoming half year. So we've got the next, well, now it's going to be five months uh, planned in advance, which hopefully gives you more time to read and digest uh, the readings, to, to send us questions um, and generally plan your time. Uh, and it helps us too. So hopefully it works out well for everyone. So I'm just going to run through what we're doing next after this one. Uh, at the end of October, we'll be discussing Todd McGowan's book on Hegel. Um, we'll also be interviewing him uh, a few weeks after we have the reading club discussion. So the questions that you send in for us to discuss, we'll also put to him. So, um, you know, no pressure. No, no, just kidding. But, you know, it, it'll be good to be able to um, put those questions to the author himself as well. Uh, in November, at the end of November, we're discussing Christopher Lash's The Culture of Narcissism, a book which uh, I'm sure most people will be at least vaguely familiar with. Maybe you'll have read bits of it. Maybe you'll have read the whole thing. Uh, we're going to be trying to reevaluate it uh, in today's times and uh, maybe present a critical appraisal of it because um, you can get your, you know, Lash fanboys and fangirls elsewhere. <laughs> Uh, and then in December, well, it'll be the December Reading Club, but it'll be recorded in at the beginning of January, which will give you the holiday period to read uh, Wolfgang Strick's Critical Encounters, a selection of his essays published in the New Left Review and elsewhere. And then in January, we have Richard Tuck's The Left Case for Brexit um, coming up to... There's a reason for this, uh, guys, that we chose January for this, something to do with Brexit. Fill me in. So the end of the transition, uh, Britain exits the transitional arrangement, which has governed um, relations uh, between European Union and Britain since the start of the year. At the end of this year, 2020, we exit the transitional arrangement with or without a deal. And so we decided it would be um, it would be great to talk about um, Richard Tuck's book at the end of the year, at the start of next year. That's uh, So that's the left case for Brexit at the end of January. And then at the end of February, uh, Gilles Deleuze's essay, Postscript on the Societies of Control, uh, something that I first read, you know, maybe a decade ago. Um, I'm looking forward to rereading it. I remember it kind of really impacted me when I read it for the first time. It made sense of a lot of why the both kind of micromanagement uh, of social affairs by governments up to larger elements of control exercised by states. Um, and it kind of put it into really important context. Anyway, so I'm looking forward to that one uh, as well. Looking forward to all of them, really. Yeah, I mean, so we all we we all picked um, two of those books. So I think I went for the um, <clears throat> the Christopher Lash and the Richard Tuck selection. So, yeah, I think it's it's good to plan in advance as well. We're embracing planning and looking forward uh, yeah, more than a month in advance, because obviously some of these texts are quite are quite long, I think particularly the McGowan and the Lash books um, and, the, and the Tuck one as well. So yeah, I mean, it's a good, it's good to lay out our stall as well, I think, to say these are the, the books in the next six months that we're going to be reading and thinking about. So join us in in this uh yeah. in this project and and where they and where are these guys uh they are all guys i suppose uh are alive we'll also be interviewing them right so got uh yeah we we thought about interviewing Deleuze, but it might be a bit of a one-way conversation i guess um but yeah no looking forward to 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 talking to um yeah to to some of the authors as well which would be great yeah, I mean, we... I'm um, particularly looking forward to McGowan. I mean, I'm looking forward to all of them. Um, needless to say, 
Um, I think Wolfgang Streak is always um, worth uh, reading, as indeed is Richard Tuck. Um, I'm ex particularly excited for McGowan because I suppose it was more of an unexpected find, um, recommended to us um, by a friend and a colleague. And um, I just didn't expect that I, the book of um, political philosophy on the notoriously dense and difficult thinker, Hegel, would be um, such an electrifying read, to be honest. So um, it was a great find, but I'm looking forward to everything um, that we've planned for the next few months. Yeah, no, it's, and it's good to highlight that, actually, because it can seem a bit daunting. I was a little bit daunted uh, by the idea, but Phil assures me that it's uh, a very digestible and politically sharp book. Um, so, yeah, something to look forward to. And as we say, uh, we'll be interviewing him after that. Um, so that's another reason to read it, I guess, in advance. Uh, also, we'll be having Wolfgang Strake on the podcast and Richard Tuck. Um, again, I think all of those after we have the reading club. So uh, an, an opportunity to kind of develop what we've discussed on these reading clubs uh, in an interview with uh, the author. So, um, you know, let your friends know in case this is something that uh, they would be interested in themselves. Right. So to this month's essay, uh, Michał Kaletsky's The Political Consequences of Full Employment. So just briefly to introduce the author, uh, Michał Kaletsky is a Polish was a Polish economist from a Marxian background whose work uh, really anticipated Keynes and he really wasn't very recognized for it uh, at the time while he was alive. Um, but today is seen as a major influence on post-Keynesian econo economics. Um, but some of his work really um, anticipated Keynes's landmark work by about three or four years. Uh, it's quite remarkable, actually. Um, the essay that we're going to discuss today was written in the midst of World War II uh, during a period of full employment. Uh, Kaletsky was working in Oxford at the Oxford Institute of Statistics uh, at the time of writing it. Uh, after that, he, he left, I think, in 45, after feeling that his uh, work was underappreciated. And in fact, that seems to be a recurring theme in his career, because uh, later he was working at the UN Secretariat in New York. He left under the pressure of McCarthyism. Uh, and then in, I think, in the 60s and 70s, he returned to Poland, and he held really senior positions in, in planning commissions and so on, um, but felt that his work was ignored, um, that uh, I, th I read that I think he was accused of defeatism. Um, so as a whole, I think he maybe never had the, the, the career success and recognition uh, while he was alive that he merited. Um, and reading this essay, I think it's such a remarkable piece. I th and the only thing that actually takes away from it is reading it from today's context, maybe some of those ideas have been uh, absorbed, maybe you've come across them in other pieces and other writing, um, and or just maybe absorbed some of the ideas by osmosis. So they don't, if, if there's if there's one reason that the, the, the words in there don't strike you as uh, remarkably innovative and important, it's just because you might have uh, come around to them or come across them um, in some roundabout way uh, in advance. Um, Yes, yeah, so, sorry. Just just to interject yeah. there, I would I would liken this to to listening to uh, Gang of Four the first first time. You're like, oh, I've heard this before, haven't I? It sounds like a uh, a stripped back version of uh, various other things that you're familiar with. So yeah, I just yeah. thought I'd, just thought I'd throw that yeah, in there yeah, as a fair fair one for. I don't know if that works fans. or not. Yeah. I, I I think it does. I mean, if if people are Gang of Four fans and they'd listen to Block Party and some other ripoffs. Uh, more <clears throat> more familiar with those before listening to the original, but yeah, sorry, sorry to yeah. interrupt. No, 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 that's a fair point. That's that's good. Um, so uh, let me just summarize what's in the the piece. Maybe if you haven't read it, I'll try to give a gist of what it's what's in there. Um, and in general, it'll set us off on the right foot in terms of uh, discussing the content. 
So I mean, the book um, is about the political challenge to class authority that full employment gives rise to. Um, so Kaletsky starts out by setting out what the doctrine of full employment is, something that he concedes that many economists have now, now saying in the 1940s, have accepted to a greater or lesser degree. Um, the idea is that states could commit themselves um, to pursuing full employment through a state intervention. And in fact, many states um, by that time or shortly after actually did commit themselves even by law to pursuing full, um, uh, full employment. Uh, the U.S. did it in 1946 through the Employment Act uh, as a way of dealing with the post-war demobilization. Um, obviously, you had full employment during the war effort uh, and afterwards as a way of um, mopping up or dealing with any potential unemployment uh, that you'd have the state actually actively committed um, to pursuing policies to guarantee full employment. Um, in practice, it meant actually accepting 3% unemployment and there's a whole uh, economic discussion, uh, as far as I understand it, about whether full employment means 0% unemployment or whether you accept a certain degree of structural or frictional unemployment such that, you know, you have people who are shortly between jobs, okay, that doesn't get counted as unemployment. Um, so there's very kind of technical measures, but the idea that generally you have, you know, near 100% or near 0% unemployment. Um, but in reality, uh, you know, this was never achieved, and certainly not throughout the throughout the whole neoliberal period. Um, this whole this has been abandoned as an objective, even where uh, it still remains within the statute books. Um, so Kaletsky says that full employment uh, is possible through public investment or through subsidizing mass consumption, um, both of which uh, increase effective demand. Uh, and this is especially done if it's uh, especially relevant or especially effective if it's done not through borrowing, or rather, excuse me, if it's done through borrowing rather than through taxation. So that taxation uh, doesn't uh, basically take away money that could be invested elsewhere. Uh, the, the way that this happens is that government pays out uh, in securities and bonds um, and that people either trade those bonds to uh, provide serve goods and services, produce goods and services, um, or that uh, the banks buy up these securities and the banks loan the government or give the government money in exchange, which it then uses uh, to procure, um, procure production. Uh, importantly, this doesn't lead to inflation. Uh, Kaletsky maintains because uh, it should lead to increases in production. Um, so there should be excess, you know, slack capacity, which is then bought up. Um, if that doesn't happen uh, and there's nowhere for that to for that money to go in production, then yes, that will lead to inflation. Um, but in in theory, in most of the situations, this shouldn't happen. Uh, the point that he's trying to draw out in in laying out this case is that there's really no good reason in theory not to pursue this, uh, even from the capitalist point of view, because it leads to higher profits. So it's it's a seems to be a win win, and yet capitalists oppose themselves to full employment. And the reason for this uh, is that there's a really strong political opposition to full employment because of its social consequences. These manifest as economic arguments. So that is to say that uh, the capitalists avail themselves of you know, technical economic arguments, but which really conceal a political motive behind them. And I'm just going to say what these are. So he identifies three. Um, I'm going to lay these out and then George and Phil will come in. Uh, he lays out three different uh, motives for the opposition to full employment and full employment measures. The first is just a simple dislike of government intervention to court. So uh, the idea is that uh, in, in investment um, decisions are dependent on business confidence. 
right? Um, which that and and that fluctuating sense of confidence um, is something that allows capitalists to um, well to effectively hold the lever on the economy on the lever on the level of employment uh, to suit it. So the once you have the government coming in and uh, managing the economy effectively without the capitalists, or at least marginalizing them to a certain degree, uh, the capitalists lose their veto power. Um, and so th- the more government intervention you have, the less authority the capitalists have in deciding when investment happens and doesn't happen. Um, and their ability to do so is very important in terms of maintaining the level of employment higher or lower, which again is important in terms of um, the power that labor holds. Uh, the bargaining power that labor holds, because the higher uh, employment levels, the more uh, the more um, leverage workers have. He points out, and this was a good point, which I, you know, had never occurred to me, um, that the doctrine of sound finance, or you know, otherwise known as fiscal conservatism, is all about limiting the role of government, so that private inter- private interests can retain this veto, they, so that they can hold this lever of the employment level and move it up or down according uh, according to their whims. So the government, if the government, if the state um, budget is limited, uh, you know, the, the state can't then take up any slack. Um, and so, again, it's it, he's putting the question of the political power of capitalists front and center um, in what is otherwise uh, seemingly a piece about economics. And I think that's a really important thing which we're going to come on to discuss. Uh, the second reason that capitalists dislike full, un- full employment is that they might dislike the direction of public spending. So they might they might accept that the state can do things in that the private sector can't, such as in education, health, or infrastructure. Um, though I should note that in the neoliberal period, this is no longer the case because uh, private interests uh, start uh, s- yeah start start in- involving themselves much more uh, in education, health, and infrastructure precisely through because of state pri- privatization and so on. Um, so they might be okay with the state uh, doing certain things in those areas, um, but they feel that it shouldn't enter into any other areas. But they worry that if if the state starts, um, you know, building roads, then it might also start uh, doing other things and in involving itself more directly, either in nationalization or involving itself in other areas of the economy. And then it also objects to to um, sustaining demand through the subsidizing of consumption because. This is just a point of principle from the kind of bourgeois mindset is that you should earn your own living and therefore people shouldn't have an unearned income, um, which is the state giving them money or Trump bucks. <laughs> um, but of course, uh, this uh, exceptions do apply. And of course, uh, those with private means, private wealth uh, or inherited wealth, of course, are exempt from that. Um, they're allowed to uh, to have uh, high consumption, uh, which is unearned. Uh, the third reason, finally, uh, for disliking the doctrine of full employment and opposing uh, themselves to full employment is the social political consequences. And this is the most important and the, and the, the sharpest point is that if you have full employment, the, the sack firing people doesn't have the disciplinary role that it used to. If there's high unemployment, you know that if you lose your job, you're going to struggle to get another one. Um, if there is full employment and there's a lot of demand for labor out there, um, either be- in the private sector or the public sector, or because the public sector is um, sustaining demand so that uh, there's full employment, uh, you know that losing your job is not such a catastrophe. Um, and therefore, you can you can be more willing to go on strike and to demand more in terms of wages and conditions. Um, and here, I think, is probably the most important line in the whole thing. 
uh, Kaletsky, and I'll bring in George and Phil to, to comment on it immediately after I say this, uh, that dis- the discipline in the factory and political stability matter more than profits. I think that's really important. So anyway, um, any uh, things that you want to pick up, guys? Yeah, so I think that the, um, the context is is important um, here, or, or it's interesting because you have this obviously written and or published in 1943. You have government intervention in the economy. Like today, you have a massive uh, mobilization of the population at that point, unlike today. Um, and so I guess you have the possibility for questioning or for rethinking macroeconomic rules. Um, obviously, today, there's no real, I guess, alternatives. There's no real um, sort of push push towards an alternative economic system. But I think the the way of framing it is 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 useful that you have those three different objections to full employment so people don't like government intervention don't like the direction of public spending um because it competes with private sector you know state aid is is a bad thing uh, for example and then that's the third one which i think is the you know it refocuses attention on the socio-political consequences of of full employment and this is the, you know this is classic marxist point that the reserve army of labor this the, the unemployment has a political effect it's not just a um it's not just an economic side side effect of 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 the way that you want to produce and distribute it's it has a political meaning and that's i think that's really important yeah um I suppose it's an interesting it's an interesting idea to introduce the role. I mean, as you've suggested, Alex, to introduce the role of authority into what otherwise are you know kind of um, accounting identities at the aggregate national level, um, uh, economic dynamics, you know, kind of interest rates, bond purchases, the behavior of banks, um, and yeah. It's an interesting because I mean I suppose the only other intangible I think that's mentioned in the piece is business confidence. So business confidence is something which the um, government has to kind of uh, uh, respond to, manage, manipulate, be reactive to, um, and then also the intangible of authority and how far capitalist authority is affected by full employment. Um, so yeah, it's an. In- I mean it's. Uh, I mean I agree with you. It's. Um, it's fascinating to see the issue of authority of uh, the authority of a particular kind of class rule introduced into a discussion of effects that are otherwise supposed to be all effect, you know, automatic, essentially, um, that every other actor or um, response is uh, counterbalanced by you know, something else happening elsewhere in the economy. Yeah, and just, just a quick point on, I guess, the um, so listeners will have read this quite possibly in the Jacobin presentation or, or the, the PDF from the Jacobin um, republish, republication um, of, the, of the article. And I think it's just worth flagging uh, their introduction and the way that it's, it's presented um, because they talk about the quote, most sensitive political contradiction in a capitalist society, unquote. This is, this is the b- between labor and, and capital. And this, I think, is is obviously massively underplaying it. It's not the most politically sensitive. It's the defining constitutive um, political contradiction in a capitalist society. And it's and it and it is worth recentering the discussion 
discussion around employment on uh, and, and unemployment on that primary contradiction, that primary asymmetric relation, which means that it can't be win-win. You can't, you know, one side wins when the other loses. So it's not, um, and I think that's, that is the, that is the way to, to think about it and the, the context in which to put this, this article, which is an important one that you have, you know, full employment is good for, is good for labor. So it must be bad for capital. Um, and that's, I think a good starting point. Mm. Yeah. Well, and, just, and, sure and it runs contra- go ahead. Phil. What do you mean? Well, in so far as, I mean, I suppose it's important to, it's not the same. I mean, at least by the Marxist reckoning, it's not the central contradiction of capitalism. Um, but even as a political contradiction, I think it's, um, even then it's, uh, it's not clear how it would apply today because we've lived with mass unemployment for, you know, uh, probably 50 years, if you say from the 70s, it became an institutionalized feature of um, advanced economies again in the West since the end of the Second World War. And so we've lived with it for a very long time. Um, and at the same time, though, even though now we have kind of um, institutionalized high rates of unemployment, and as we discussed in a previous episode with Aaron Beninov about the um, also the kind of the declining rates of participation in the labor force. And so and yet at the same time, you have um, a distinct lack of uh, capitalist authority. So the idea that the two things kind of um, are always an in inverse proportion that dynamic seems to have ended at some point. Um, no, I disagree. Maybe, I, well, there is no capitalist authority at the moment. I mean, there is, there is, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, there's a huge amount of capitalist authority because they can fire you. They can make you uh, do what you no, want no, at, they, at work. They still I mean, that's, have that's what power. This is about. No, 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 they still, they still have power, right? But not authority. So if we're going to be clear about the rule, about the, um, about the kind of terms that we're using, perhaps, because authority is a, is a term that can be used um, in different ways. I mean, you know, clearly um, they still have power, right? And particularly in certain kinds of economy, like the US, um, with the notorious flexible job market. But I wouldn't say the capitalist class has authority. Um, and I think that's been very clear, like in the last few years, and also as a result of the um, as the result yeah. of the Corona pandemic. No, that's 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 definitely true. And actually, this was a point that I that I think came through really clearly in the article. Is that if you compare the context in which Kolecki is writing to today, it is clear that the um, there is so business or capital or however you want to want to talk about this group of. Of people is not self-confident. The question of the post-slump settlement. So Kolecki talks about, you know, what what's going to happen um, after you have this this kind of uh, massive public investment financed by borrowing. What what will happen after that? We're in a very different situation because capital is not as self-confident as it once was. But I don't think that that shouldn't be um, that shouldn't mask or or um, make you forget that there is still that asymmetric relation, that it is still about capital and labor with the, with the two interests being um, diametrically opposed. So I, well, I, I think I, maybe we can park this because we have a question from a listener which touches on this question kind of directly. So um, maybe we're going to come back to this at the end because uh, it's a really good uh, good thing to try to unpack in, in more detail. Um, so just going to keep moving through the text because there's, I think, three other major points that are made in the piece. And so we're, I'm going to 
discuss the the point each in turn with uh, and bring Phil and George in to discuss it uh, before we turn to um, kind of a few broader questions looking at why the piece is important and what its political consequences are uh, before turning to uh, your questions listeners uh, at, at the kind of latter third of, uh, of this episode. So the next point which I wanted to draw out which uh, Kaletsky makes is that uh, fascism overcame this question of capitalist opposition to full employment. Um, fascism dealt with unemployment um, mainly because mainly through uh, investing in armaments, um, it mopped up all of the unemployment, um, which was uh, itself a big spur to uh, to fascism. Um, that objection from the part of capitalists was dealt with by fascism um, for a very specific reason. And here um, I'm kind of uh, interpreting Kaletsky rather than quoting directly. But the, the, the problem with full employment, as I said uh, in, in discussion of the text, that it removes capitalists, um, it, it, rather it strengthens labor's hand over uh, in relation to capital. Um, capitalists want the power of the sack. Um, if you have full employment, you don't have that. But what fascism does is uh, substitute in direct domination by the fascist state. So instead of the impersonal domination by the market, i.e. the fear of getting fired, uh, the fear of losing your job, uh, the fear of losing your income, um, you can have full employment, but you have the fascists doing the job of uh, what the market did impersonally. Um, so you, you get it, you know, capitalist compulsion remains, um, but it's done politically rather than just economically. Um, and in, in Kaletsky's words, the state machinery is under the direct control of a partnership of big business with fascism. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's very important, um, not necessarily for our times today, but for understanding what the role of fascism was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually realized that I forgot to make my the main point that I wanted to make on the stuff that you said previously. So I'm gonna gonna try and make that point and then segue into into I think what was a very good summary of the the um, comments on fascism in in the article. But yeah, I think those. So you have those three points of of opposition to against full employment, dislike of government intervention, dislike of the direction of public spending and dislike of socio-political consequences. I think the, you know, the one and two today have been, have been basically th thrown away. So we, we like, we now accept that there's a necessity of government intervention. We now accept that there's a direction of public spending, which is essentially required um, to, to avoid mass unemployment, that there's a, there's furlough schemes across across the world. I mean, in, in the UK, it's, it's very, very clear that there's been this massive government spending to avoid a, a situation of, of mass um, unemployment. And I don't think that that is because of a kind of a fascist worry or fascist threat or menace. Um, because I think the, and, and we've, I, we've always talked about this previously on the podcast the the defining factor here is is a political one i don't think it's an economic one it's about the the strength of a of a radical left opposition and without that you're not going to have the conditions for for a fascist um for a rise of fascism because fundamentally you don't have the response of of capital to the to that threat that labor poses yeah though i think i mean that's still that's that's a problem that needs to be solved intellectually because if 
if effectively states um, and state managers are afraid of unemployment, that they take measures to prevent mass unemployment, uh, certainly in Europe, not so much in the US, uh, that still shows that they're trying to avoid something which they could otherwise be okay with. I mean, why do they care about not having mass unemployment? They could they could totally have loads of people unemployed. It wouldn't matter. They, they, you know, it can still be a political calculation that you don't want to have a lot of people unemployed and looking for a, for an alternative um you know an alternative party to to yeah. to be you know for no, you to be voted I, out of I, office i agree it's just interesting because in the 1980s for example uh, thatcher and reagan were both a, were both very happy to have mass unemployment as a way of breaking the back of the unions and they used unemployment as a political tool um and there, at that time, there were far more political alternatives than there are today. And yet today, um, elites seem far more wary, again, at least in Europe, of uh, creating huge pools of unemployed mm. people. Anyway, it's, well, I think no, we maybe can come no back unions, to... No unions to break, only... Yeah, no unions to break, only only kind of potential like worries to cause. You know, why not yeah. Why not buy them off with uh, UBI, Trump bucks, or, or furlough schemes? Yeah, and indeed, I'd like have well, people be... That's un- what they've done. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, still, it's still a question about, you know, capitalist ideology and authority. Again, we'll come back to this uh, in just a bit um, as to why they're so afraid of uh, creating unemployment when there isn't an obvious threat from their point of view. Um, so just to move through the piece, just two more points. Um, one is that it, this foreshadowed the post-war arrangement uh, that was to come. And it's based on what he was already observing in the 1940s. Um, the capitalists had were already coming to accept state intervention uh, to move beyond a laissez-faire system. Um, but nevertheless, they still tried to maintain an advantage. They weren't just accepting of the terms of the doctrine of full employment. Um, and so, you know, they make some concession to it. So they accept counter-cyclical measures, for example, uh, low taxes or low interest rates during a slump. Um, but they, uh, on the other hand, they want to keep those low levels of taxes or interest rates still during the recovery or the boom. So instead of having a, a counter-cyclical waxing and waning of these things um, to avoid that uh, the slump become too great or that the boom, be, and, and on the other hand, the boom become too great, um, they will accept the counter-cyclical measures when th- in bad times, um, but they don't want things to return to normal in the good times. Um, and I think that's, foreshadows what was to come uh, and especially it foreshadows um, the neoliberal I guess counter-revolution if you want to term it use those terms um, in uh, in insisting on the maintenance of, of low taxes for example um, it's interesting yeah. that he's, he's quite explicit just one thing Sorry. just a quote from it he says this is symptomatic of the future economic regime of capitalist democracies so he's making quite an explicit prediction and one that was proved entirely correct yeah, I think this is one of, for me, the most interesting parts of the whole article, which is, you know, picking up on on the point you just made, Alex, about the, and it directly follows in the same paragraph and that that claim that this is symptomatic of the future economic regimes of capitalist democracies. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna read a bit of the article. Um, so he 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 writes in in the slump, either under the pressure of the masses or even without it, public investment financed by borrowing will be undertaken to prevent large scale unemployment. But if attempts are made to apply this method in order to maintain the high employment reached in the subsequent boom, strong opposition by business leaders is likely to be encountered. As already has been argued, lasting full employment is not at all to their liking. The workers would get out of hand. 
and the captains of industry would be anxious to teach them a lesson. And I think this is this really made me think, obviously, about the, the current situation. And going back to a point that Phil made earlier, which I think is completely correct, is that the bosses are not that self-confident either. So the whole thing reads true until you get to the um, to the end. That the last part of the analysis, you, you can't really see today the captains of industry looking to teach um, workers a lesson. Instead, there would be a really different um, response, one which would look to be, I guess, a, a lot more conciliatory or in, in other ways anxious, anxious to make sure the workers don't get too upset and, and organised rather than teaching a lesson. So I, I guess there's a there's definitely something prescient in that, but that seems to be one of the big differences between the context 1943 and today is that we don't have this I guess self-confident capitalist class who are who are looking to teach workers a lesson instead it's um taking a taking a step back and trying to calm things down Mm, yeah I'm not sure I entirely agree with that just because you have entire you have all sorts of measures for control in the workplace um which are which are taken out of course you don't need to directly combat an organized and militant working class. So uh, it's more about control rather than confrontation today. Um, that's the way I would put it anyway. I think that's right. But I'm, I mean, we might be getting off topic here because I think we can cycle back to the um, contemporary relevance. Um, yeah, let's just move through it, I think, and then yeah, talk so, about it. Yeah, stuff okay. Later. Yeah, we have plenty, we have plenty of uh, contemporary uh, issues to discuss that this has brought up. So just to finish off uh, with the last point that Kaletsky makes, uh, the last really important one, which I'd like to highlight, Kaletsky concludes by saying that the full utilization of resources shouldn't be applied to unwanted investment just so as to provide work. Um, so, you know, you shouldn't just be pursuing full employment by creating demand, by, you know, with making say the government giving a company which employs people to dig holes and fill them back up again, uh, it shouldn't be doing that. It should just be doing useful stuff. Um, and once you have full employment, um, you, or rather, instead of doing that, you should at least subsidize consumption instead, uh, which just for the simple purposes, simple purpose that it makes people's lives better. Um, the consequence of this full employment model would be that you would need new political institutions, which would reflect working class power. Um, and that's quite important. This would still be within uh, within the capitalist society, uh, within private enterprise uh, seeking to make profit. But you have a working class which is far more empowered through full employment um, and also better off. Um, if capitalism can live with it, Kaleski concludes, then, you know, great, you've instituted a major reform in capitalism, increasing workers' control, increasing workers' power. If it fails, um, and cap- or rather, if capitalism shows itself to be unable to live with this arrangement, um, which, despite higher profits, also leads to greater worker self-assertiveness and new political institutions through which the working class can pursue its interests and desires, um, if capitalism cannot live with that, then that just proves that we need to move beyond capitalism. Um, he says in not quite such exact terms, but more or less that. Um, and that's quite that's quite important. Um, of course, that's a that's a model which uh, was never fully realized, and certainly today uh, is no longer with us. So um, maybe we should move on then to why this piece is important, why it's such a landmark and brilliant piece. Uh, And I've drawn out a couple of these and guys come in um, as I go through them. So the first one is that this anticipates both 
the Keynesian period after the Second World War, as well as its end uh, and the, the neoliberal counter-revolution that came in to put an end to a situation in which uh, workers had too much power, um, had kind of excess demands, um, and undertook the kind of neoliberal reforms to, to weaken workers' power. Um, and part of that, uh, as I already said, was increasing unemployment, which weakened uh, labor's bargaining power. So I think that's very clear. I don't think we, we've already commented on how prescient it was. Uh, the second point, which is one which I drew attention to earlier, and I think it's maybe the most important one in the whole lot of it, is that uh, it raises, it puts the question of political authority central rather than income and wealth. And not just that, but it says that political authority is kind of what matters more to capitalists than just questions of income and wealth. And, and in doing so, it introduces a political dimension into economy and, and makes it central to the functioning of the economy rather than seeing them as two distinct arena in which you have a, a kind of autonomous self-functioning economy and then you have political matters which intrude upon the economy sometimes no those political questions are central to the function of the economy itself it's political economy if you if you will yeah i mean that's 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 important i i guess i i probably wasn't as as blown away by this as as i think you guys might have been I hadn't hadn't read it previously, exposing my my ignorance once again. Um, but it did seem to me like the, the the central point here, or the central kind of thing to take away from it, is is a is a fairly you know fairly basic point about the relationship that capital and and labour stand in, that they're antagonistic, um, and that there is a um, there is a, a a kind of a, an effect that unemployment has in terms of disciplining labor in terms of reducing labor's organizing power um and that this is you know this is hardly in some ways a new insight we've known for a long time that there is one capital many labors and labor has to organize and has to has to kind of overcome all of the individualizing um processes that that are put on individual labor laborers like unemployment for example so it's been i guess known for a long time and maybe i'm missing something and being shallow in my reading but the 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 central idea that there's a there's kind of a there's a, a political question at the, the the center of the economy and that one of the aspects of that is is the level of employment or unemployment that's you know everybody except neoliberal economists who talk about the quote-unquote natural rate of unemployment um know about this right I think there are two things which make it such a significant piece. Um, and if it was just saying capital and labor are antagonists, I mean, obviously that would be make it, you know, uh, worthless effectively and certainly not original. Um, I think it's most important. Um, it's trying to extrapolate from the circumstances of um, full employment um, in the wartime economies of the Western states past the past the end of the war, and bearing in mind it's published in 1943, so it's you know it's um, a year the year before Hayek publishes Road to Serfdom, when he's eyeing what the post-war world will look like, um, and two years away from the end of the war. So you know I mean it's uh, looking you know looking uh, in, in the middle of the Second World War, it's looking ahead quite far. Um, and it's not just the introduction of the intangible question of the political authority of one class over another, but also the fact that he, um, it's, you know, it's not that he's predicting Keynesianism because he said, you know, or full employment, he said, because it's locked in. What's striking is the prediction that it won't be viable. 
um, because it won't be acceptable to maintaining capitalist class rule. And he keeps on returning to this question. The costs of maintaining full employment will be unacceptable to um, to capitalists. And it's a remarkable, you know, it's a, it's a prediction that's remarkably vindicated many years later, you know, 25, 30 years after the end of the war. Um, but that's that's not an original prediction. I mean, that's that's all all there in in Marx, isn't it? That the no, because Marx isn't, isn't talking it? in an era of full employment. He's talking yeah, in the circumstances it's, it's with a, which there is no fine. governmental, um, there is no mass effort, and there is no capacity on the part of the state to mount um, full initiatives at full employment, let alone um, a global war on the scale of the first and second world wars. The other element, which is um, and which is important, and I think he's maybe the first, is to understand um, a political boom and bust cycle. Um, and this is explained in um, uh, some of the notes that come with the with the essay, at least in uh, one of the versions that I came across. Uh, so it's not just the um, it's not just a business cycle, but that the state effort to manage um, uh, economic resources at the level of the, the nation state itself will introduce uh, political you know political calculations into the boom and into the regular rhythm of boom and bust. Um, and this gets, you know, I mean, this gets taken up later and uh, kind of boulderized somewhat into the idea of um, electoral kind of cycles of boom and bust, linking it narrowly to uh, political, you know, political calculations of advantage around election time, when I think Kaletsky means something a bit grander than that in terms of the political effects of um, attempts to manage the economy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that is um, that is that is important. Um one of the things that struck me um, is the arbitrariness by which uh, of the rule of capital, and uh, I say that in reference to his highlighting of business confidence as a major factor. Effectively, it's a it's what you have is a tyranny of capital, where um, a small class of people gets to decide on the. Um, consequences and, and destiny of of everyone else's lives by their investment decisions um, based on nothing else than whim or you know what is otherwise known as business confidence um, and I think that's quite uh, that's quite striking um, that is a level of uh, a level of uh, control which is often not discussed not discussed enough, not realized enough in, in terms of thinking of capitalism maybe as a system of production or in applying certain dis- unequal distribution of goods and income and so on. Um, but really just the degree of of control that, you know, the capitalist class has, I think is something maybe that is, especially today, not often discussed um, in these discussions about inequality. Um, and mm. I think, and, and one thing which is, which I think was brought home to me in reading this was remembering these, you know, these kind of stupid discussions that I'm sure everyone's had between, you know, pro-capitalism or pro-socialism, you know, and you say, well, the benefits of socialism would be, oh, yeah, but capitalism, blah, 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 blah. In those discussions, always the, the capitalist side goes, even if they're kind of convinced by some of the good sides of socialism, they go, yeah, but, you know, why would anyone do under, uh, why would anyone do any work under socialism? You know, that if that's, if you just have everything that you want, why would you even go to work? Um, which shows you really what the primary concern with capitalism is. It's not that, uh, you know, capitalism is good because it's the most efficient system um, of production or that it guarantees individual freedom, but fundamentally uh, it's a means of discipline. It's a means of uh, control. It's a mean of domination. 
Um, it's a way to get people to go to go to work to get to, to go, go to work. Office, that's what it's fundamentally it about. Was. Yeah, no, but that's that's it. And I think what what uh, Kaletsky portrays in it portrays this sort of in miniature in this debate over full employment, which again is not a debate between capitalism and socialism, but about certain contradictions within capitalism under a certain type of capitalism under you know what ca- came to be called you know kind of Keynesian or for the Fordist Keynesian system or whatever, um, where. The, the power of labor um, with under, you know, under a condition of full employment uh, means that capitalists lose their powers of, of compulsion, which they previously had a, in a more laissez-faire system where you have a reserve army of labor, which acts as a sort of a threat to those people, to those people who are in work um, because you're, you're scared of losing your job that someone else is going to take it. Uh, and I think, anyway, I guess just to summarize, uh, I think that's something that this brings home, maybe not so, uh, it's not a, maybe a direct point that Kaletsky tries to make, but it comes across very clearly, again, um, that capitalism is not just a system um, which is about economic production, but is about uh, political authority. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's collectively irrational, and the irrationality one aspect of that is the arbitrariness and the the substitution of of a collective social decision on what we want to produce and distribute how we want to allocate resources um to a few individuals with their their foibles and their 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 stories of their their um good investments and their ability to pick um to pick winners yeah i mean it's it i think it's i think it is very clear that the or has been made even clearer in the past few months how how this is a disciplining a system of discipline a system of control that is predicated on the the idea that there's only one thing worse than having a job and that's not having a job that obviously there's a whole set of of kind of um social moral um um rules against against being unemployed it's you know it's a it's a situation of um which is you know not not allowed for the individual so yeah i mean it's very clearly a system of of control and coercion so just to wrap up this section before we turn to listeners questions i wanted to highlight one thing which is um about fascism but the point is not to discuss the fascist period um kletsky obviously draws our attention to the role of fascism in direct political domination um in substituting for for capitalists and substituting for the market and but also that, you know, he, he discussed at the very end um, the argument made by others that maybe full employment will bring back fascism. He says, no, that's that's nonsense. That, that gets things the wrong way around. In fact, uh, full employment is actually the best way of preventing fascism. Now, uh, for reasons we've discussed a number of times on this podcast, fascism isn't a real uh, threat or going concern today. So the, the point I'm raising that not to discuss, you know, is that true or, you know, should do we need full employment to avoid potential fascism today? That's not what I want to say. What I want to ask, um, and this is a, a, a question which, um, which was raised, I think, a little bit earlier in our discussions, is unemployment a threat today? You know, is it seen from the perspective of capital as as a, as as something as a risk that they aren't willing to to accept either because of uh, the disorder that it'll cause and um, because of you know the masses might be prey to fascism or just simply because of the lack of effective demand that uh, you know the kind of underconsumption theory that basically if you have if you have too many people underemployed and unemployed uh, you don't have enough people 
out there to buy the products of capital that that, that capitalist production produces. Um, so, is unemployment seen as a threat today? I think it's very hard to you know to answer the question. Um, partly because, as we've discussed already, I mean, we've lived with extensive unemployment and shrinking labor force participation for a very long time. And it's, you know, it's become effectively institutionalized in a way that would have been seen threatening to the fabric of democracy, say, in the 60s and 50s. Um, so, you know, there's that. And I'm not... There are agencies that have responded um, to economic crisis, so, you know, mainly central banks, um, with uh, the kind of vestigial remnants of um, the welfare state, the auto- so-called automatic stabilizers in Western states. So whoever they're, you know, however, whoever they're acting on behalf of, it's not clear to me that you could infer a clear, um, a clear sense of uh, what uh, business leaders, captains of industry, um, chambers of commerce, what have you, you know, the kind of the normal places that you might go to look for capitalist, um, for expressions of a cohesive capitalist outlook on particular questions. It's not clear to me that there, um, that there is a, a concern about um, unemployment per se, but vague concern. I mean, you know, so every Davos meeting for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years or something has been going on about unemployment. And everyone knows the stories about all the oligarchs and billionaires buying up concrete nuclear bunkers in New Zealand or wherever um, to see out the kind of coming apocalypse when the plebs take over. So, I mean, there's certainly kind of lots of uh, unease and sense of um, sense of social disintegration. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's exactly the same thing as um, the seeing unemployment as a threat, which has to be managed. And in any case, you know, it's not the, the economic management efforts that we have seen since the crisis in 2008 are not those of trying to maintain employment. Um, that's only come about really yeah. through the pandemic. Um, it's rather been the efforts by central banks to try and keep the economy afloat and the financial system afloat. I mean, I'm I'm not sure I entirely agree. I think it, it can be put a bit more strongly than that, that I don't think unemployment is particularly seen to be a political threat for, for two reasons. One that we've had for a quite a while, this idea, as I mentioned earlier, of a natural rate of unemployment, that there is essentially a certain proportion of the population who have individual failings, um, which means that they're they're unemployable. And that's not the economy's fault, that's their fault, and they can't be employed and they shouldn't be employed. And that's and that's fine. And that's a way obviously to manage a certain level of unemployment. But I think to to link to some of the other episodes and discussions that we've had. I think there's also probably a deeper kind of or the, the ground is being prepared that we have this this movement towards automation this is going to this is going to naturally lead to some unemployment and the question is is essentially how to to render this palatable and to to sort of say okay well this is you know this is this is the the core the natural course of things this is what technology does so maybe we introduce UBI maybe we you know we have other um kind of solutions but ultimately we we are we should look forward to uh, not look forward in sense of, of relish but we should um, project into the future a higher level of unemployment and it's going to be you know we're not going to like it but we'll have to go along with it because that's the way that technology is going um, and I think that that ground it seems to me is being is me, being prepared at the moment 
I think so too. I mean, I think all the discussion around, you know, UBI about automation and so on, even if they're wrong in their diagnosis, again, uh, refer you back to episode 149, uh, the recent one on unemployment, um, where we discuss this in more depth. I think they, they, they still gives, it testifies to a concern amongst the elite that there will be more unemployment. And, you know, the, the fact that states pursue all these sort of active um, active policies like getting people back into work and doing training and all this stuff. Okay, we know that it's kind of futile because, you know, if you train someone up to be a coder, but everyone else is a coder, what's, you know, and there's not enough coder jobs out there, whatever it might be, uh, you know, that doesn't, me, that doesn't really me, work. So go on. Let me respecify that. I mean, you know, so, you know, obviously I take your point that just as much as inequality has been kind of the concern of the elite for a long time, you could say the same. You're right. I mean, obviously, automation and the perceived looming threat of mass unemployment is also, um, perce- you know, a perceived problem. There are two qualifications to it, though. So, you know, part of the reason that it's on the kind of radar of the, you know, the kind of the radar of public debate and consciousness is because it's seen to be threatening um, white collar middle class professional jobs, not just working class jobs. So, yeah, you know, I mean, nobody mm. see, you know. Um, yeah. The second point is that it's not seen as it was, right? So in the past, unemployment was seen as a threat because it would um, strengthen potentially revolutionary forces or strengthen potentially socialist and radical parties or indeed fascist parties. So it was seen to, um, uh, you know, kind of signal greater support for political extremism. And I think, you know, since the 70s, 80s, that threat has effectively uh, melted away. It's no longer connected to unemployment. Um, so unemployed, if unemployed, the extent to which unemployment is seen as a threat, it's seen as a threat of social disintegration of the need for new mechanisms of management like UBI. It's not seen as threatening, um, you know, that the masses are going to eat the rich. Um, you know, some oligarchs buy up the nuclear bunkers and all of that, but it's not, um, it's certainly, I don't think anybody would think that it's, um, unemployment raises the prospect of a revolutionary menace to capitalist yeah. society today. Yeah, I mean that's that, that's the point, right? So it's not a threat. Threat's not the right word. It's a, a problem to be managed. It's a technical um, challenge. You know, we've got to make sure that everybody has their their Netflix and 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 things to be delivered to their homes, and and, and they'll be fine. Because the the idea of a threat or an organised, um, I guess, labour movement is not that's that context isn't there. So it, I think it is perceived in fundamentally a different way. And I, I agree with that, definitely. So maybe we should move on to the listener questions now. So thank you again, as usual, uh, for all of them. Um, look forward to receiving more in the next one as well. Um, the first one, uh, let's start here, I guess. So uh, I'll read it out. Kaletsky argues that either 30s-style fascism or a rising workers' movement is necessary to overcome capitalist opposition to aggressive Keynesian policies, um, as we've seen. Given that neither of these appear to be on the table presently, that is to say neither fascism nor a rising workers' movement, can you envisage other political arrangements that could possibly accomplish this task in the coming years? Uh, is anything going to give us um, kind of full employment? I suppose I, I can I can um, try and tackle it. I'd say two things in response to the listeners um, to this question, which is first, I mean, I don't. It's not really the core of the of Kaletsky's argument. Kaletsky is looking forward to. 
he's trying to he's foreseeing the end of Keynesianism. Um, I mean, I think that's really the core of the of the paper yeah. and the argument. So it's not so much about how did you get to Keynesianism because that was you know uh, full employment and demand management was already. Um, on you know it was already what was the case in 1943. He's extrapolating from that and saying that it will not resolve the problems because it will s- still see t- still be anathema to um, the maintenance of capitalist class class rule. Um, and the second part with respect to are there any other political arrangements under which we might see it? Um, I mean. Uh, you know, it's a kind of financial Keynesianism that we've seen with the behavior of central banks um, trying to pump enormous volumes of cash into the economy in order to um, sustain it. Um, and obviously, there's all you know, uh, all the debates on quantitative easing and the failures of the, whether or not how much, how far um, their attempts to pump money into the economy actually end up into the hands of ordinary uh, consumers, or how far it just ends up as asset inflation. Um, you know, that's a separate debate. But we have, you know, we are living through a period in which we have, you know, this is a period through which there is a, an effort to revive um, extensive state manipulation of the economy, even at the global level, um, in a way that's kind of, uh, you know, not seen previously. So if you want to see, you know, what are the political, the, the questioner asks, what are the political arrangements that could possibly accomplish this task? Well, you see them now, right? And they don't seem to be working very well. I mean, and you can imagine maybe a sort of more authoritarian state capitalism emerging in which um, there's a more direct state direction of investment, um, maybe even nationalizations, um, you know, for the benefit of supporting profits. Uh, and that might lead to higher employment, um, maybe, but probably not. So I think that isn't a solution. The other one would be, you know, that you get a sort of, you know, for the sake of an argument, you know, Bernie Sanders elected. So again, absent a strong militant uh, workers movement, but you have a political movement, which is it puts in someone in power who uh, wants to put in place a jobs guarantee. And so you start training up nurses and teachers and carers and all sorts of other things, uh, socially useful, um, but not necessarily profitable uh, work that uh, that will kind of mop up a lot of unemployment and do useful things. But I think that will encounter a lot of the same issues and it'll breach, you know, it'll end up uh, confronting a lot of capitalist opposition. So and, and again, that's a that's a that's a scenario which um, seems un- rather unlikely, you know, that you have this purely political phenomenon in which you have a, a, a strongly reformist government and put into place and able to act on it without uh, kind of the level of mass mobilization needed to see that through. Uh, let me just move on. So, someone asked, you know, is this MMT? Um, is this, is, is what Kaletsky proposes here um, a sort of MMT vision? Uh, hmm. Well, I guess with MMT, the first M is modern. It's, is it that modern or is it a pre-modern uh, monetary theory is it pmmt or um not something like that that's misogynistic <sighs> that's not f- funny um the yeah i guess that you know the, the question is whether it's uh <clears throat> i guess the it, it's about public um investment and expenditure rather than printing money so it, it clearly has some some uh, similarities, but it doesn't have the it's it's not it's not packaged in that way, is it? Well, I mean, uh, from 
What I uh, recall and understand of MMT, it uh, primarily hinges around the institutionalization of floating exchange rates in the 1970s with the Nixon shock when the dollar goes off gold. Um, and so it wouldn't uh, apply to, I don't think it would apply to the circumstances of the war economies um, prior to that. But I'm sure, I mean, the way in which... Basically, you're, basically you're, you're, saying, you're agreeing with what I was saying, that it's, yeah, I'm adding it's pre-modern to, yeah, monetary well, theory. I w- I'm adding to what you were saying. Um, and also, wow. also um, well, you asked the question and I'm answering it. So, I mean, you know, it doesn't, I don't think it belongs to um, the year of um, how MMT understand their own theory, um, except maybe to say that um, I imagine that they would share some of Kalutsky's views, say, the idea that um, demand management can be maintained at this level without uh, the risk of inflation, um, which is one of their big, uh, one of the big debates around MMT is uh, the risk of inflation and how they propose to control it and manage it. Um, if you have kind of uh, the deployment of financial resources the way that they they would like. Right. So uh, turning to another question, I think um, this one asks, you know, can government projects and reductions in taxes on consumption and wages, effectively all these forms of demand management, overcome today's structural overproduction crisis? Uh, Is this still a viable transitional program? Uh, Or should we just skip that part as Ben and I have suggested at one point? So, I mean, again, uh, this refers back to the recent episode uh, 149, um, where... Uh, I mean, basically, you know, do, do these all demand management things, can they overcome today's structural overproduction crisis? I think, and you know, that question of overcapacity explains low profits, which explains low investment, which ex- explains stagnation, which explains the low demand for labor. Um, again, this is just repeating uh, Ben and Av's argument. Um, the, I think, the, and this is quite important just because the Keynesian, um, Keynesian, uh, mechanisms that were used after the Second World War were at a time of, you know, relatively higher profits, and especially in terms of, you know, post-war reconstruction, there was a lot of things, uh, a lot of economic activity to be done after the destruction of capital during the war, um, and that's what makes today's situation really rather different. Um, even if you had the political arrangements for, which would allow for the kind of Keynesian um, full employment vision, um, and when what Kalecki proposes, uh, or you know, Kalecki discusses, um, even if you had those political, even if even if you had the political arrangements to see that through, you, I don't think you have the economic situation in which that would be necessarily viable. And I'm, I'm not sure it might if it would sustain profits in the way that it did throughout, uh, you know, the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Any comment on that? I mean, well, no, it, I it, it, seemed, it seemed like you asked the question and, and answered it in, yeah. in a way. I don't know. I think, I'm oh, sorry, were... that, that wasn't meant to be a sarcastic point. I just think the way you put it was good. I agree with George. And also because you read the Bananov book, I think you're best place to answer in any case. So. Okay, so uh, let's move on then. Um, got a couple more here. One uh, it was by a, by a listener who's uh, already reading the, the Todd McGowan book, which we'll be discussing uh, in a month's time. But gold star thought, for that list gold star getting, yeah getting, exactly getting ahead um but also they were enthusiastic about it uh so you know I, that should be uh, i just want to pass on the enthusiasm and say uh, you know we're all very looking very much looking forward to reading that and discussing it um so this uh listener asks considering whether any job is suitable as a job guarantee job forces us to reckon whether it's a value to society uh, and if it is it probably should just be brought into the fold of the public sector at large um 
And I think that's that's important, right? I think it's a question that we were addressing just a second ago about, um, you know, well, or, you know, that, that Kletsky makes about not creating jobs just to create useless jobs, that you should be doing useful things. And if they're useful, maybe it shouldn't be part of a jobs guarantee, but it should be something that the state does regularly, all the time, not as a counter-cyclical measure, as a way to mop up unemployment, but it's just something that the state should do because it's useful. Um, but I guess, and then here's the question, um, how do we decide what is a useful job and what is not? Um, the proposition here is that maybe we need a jobs guarantee policy in place already um, to then be able to answer this question, to be able to say, okay, well, so we've got this jobs guarantee, but now what are we actually going to do with it? And only going through that process will be be able to uh, answer the question. Um, do we agree with this or do we think maybe we can already assert, okay, what it should be useful jobs, what, what should come under the remit of a jobs guarantee? I'm not really, I don't really, you know, I'm puzzled by the connection to the McGowan book, though I obviously share the sentiment of the gold star. Yeah, I'm not, well, we don't know about that. Yeah, not sure. <laughs> but um, I suppose, I mean, I'm not, you know, it's a, it's a Keynesian question, I suppose, um, because I think from, at least from my point of view, I think it's probably, it's more, it's less looking for, uh, I think less, our task is less for job guarantee and more for thinking of um, the fact that we live in, an, you know, in economies that are so enormously productive already, um, that really we should be thinking about um, finding ways to institutionalize more leisure time, and finding ways to support, um, you know, to support people um, with the need to work less. So, and I think, you know, to some extent, I think this is partly we see it in the level of um, in the level of unemployment, in declining uh, labor force participation. Um, not to mention the tremendous kind of um, wealth um, that's you know and unevenness of the inequality and concentration of wealth. So, you know, I'm not sure that I think that the that our most important task is kind of devising a job scheme that will be able to meet all the demands of um, of fluctuation future fluctuations in the capitalist economy. It seems to me we're probably already past that point. And we can perhaps think more boldly and creatively about how we might wish to restructure society. Mm, yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree with that. Although I do think it's a good, it, you know, it's, it's a good question in that it links the political nature of a job guarantee to the political nature of deciding what the jobs are going to be. I mean, it's, it is obviously in both cases, it's political, you know, it's political demand, and it's a, it's a question that requires collective decision-making in terms of what is it that we want to do? What is it that we want to produce? How do we move towards, you know, step-by-step step, some sort of free association of producers? Because, you know, this, this is, you know, it's part and parcel, these, these things um, with all the points that you made, Phil, about uh, establishing more leisure time, like looking at the immense technological capabilities that we have economically and deciding, Right. What do we actually need to produce? You know, what is it that because that, that's what a job guarantee is, is deciding that there is a um, there is a, a certain sort of production that needs to be engaged in and map and mapping that out at a societal level requires a degree of political control and power that labor is quite a few steps away from having. But that's obviously the ultimate ultimate aim. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think the reason that this question comes up is because of a very of a sort of sterile debate that uh, is happening now, like how to deal with unemployment. And you basically have two things: you either have a jobs guarantee or you have a UBI. 
That's generally the two options on the table. And neither of them are adequate to our times. One, because the jobs guarantee is sort of a bit sort of retro Keynesian um, and has imagines people just kind of digging holes or whatever um, and doing useless jobs, but just making sure that they have jobs. And again, you've got the contradiction about what is a jobs guarantee for? Is it to make sure that unemployment is dealt with or that useful things are done, as that previous question uh, mm-hmm. alluded to? Um, and there's that is left very unclear in the discussion of jobs guarantee. The other alternative, uh, UBI, uh, is something that, as we've discussed a number of times, uh, is very problematic. It's maybe more, seems more futuristic, but is, uh, or at least more contemporary, um, rather than the sort of retro Keynesianism of the jobs guarantee. But it's um, problematic for, well, we've discussed it a number of times, but basically you won't get a good UBI. What you'll get is a bad UBI, which is a, a basically a sop to people to just, you know, here, fuck off, to take some money and sit at home, yeah. um, which doesn't give people fulfilling life and also doesn't give them a higher standard of living. So those well, are bad. And, and, and I think yeah. just, just to finish off, I think the way that Phil put it is is correct, that it should be about, um, you know, basically having people give, have people earn more money uh, from work and also have um, greater uh, leisure. Um, but that means a, a significant rebalancing between labor and capital. Mm. Well, it's, it's the difference between a, a kind of a distinction between employment and unemployment and thinking about things in terms of, of labor in the sense of, you know, what is it that we want to produce? What is it that the, you know, what is it the, these jobs are for? You don't, you don't have a job from, you know, from the widest kind of societal perspective just to be employed. It's because there has been a decision made at some point, either um, collectively or in a, a kind of dis- disaggregated kind of individualized way that this work is useful or valuable in some way. And that's, you know, that's that's essentially what, uh, you know, what a job or what, what labor is. And that's, you know, I think that is that can be occluded if you're talking about employment and unemployment in a kind of technocratic, um, as you said, sterile uh, sort of way. And it's worth reminding ourselves, I think, also, I mean, at least from the Marxist viewpoint, um, the aim is the abolition of wage labor itself. Um, uh, Labor becomes life's chief want rather than necessity. And that, and I think that you know, as remote as that vision uh, might be or might appear, I think it obviously needs to be. Um, it needs to be something which is borne in mind in terms of thinking about these large questions about what um, rest- a restructured economy might look like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's just move on to the very final question. Um, this relates to the way that people currently understand labor. Um, so this person comments that people, both middle-class people as well as more conservative working-class people, see the labor market only as a realm of competition. Um, so that, uh, and that, and that is, and that there should be more competition because even moves against the gig economy, um, such as trying to regulate Uber or whatever, are seen as problematic or seen as bad because people say, well, you know, I want to use these services and I want them to be cheap. I want low prices. Effectively seeing yourself as a consumer rather than as a, as a laborer who would benefit from um, greater protection, greater, um, greater rights at work, um, more leverage, uh, greater ability to, to fight for better wages and conditions. Um, so, and that is really a problem. And the, I mean, the question that's asked is how does that, how does that change? How, how does it change? Well, I mean, it's, it's the, the primary problem that's posed by, I guess, the labor capital relation is how to move beyond that real experience of the labor market being competitive. I mean, ideas of meritocracy today, for example, completely introduced that idea that 
you are pitted against everybody else who wants that who wants that job and your interests are, are, are supposedly opposed to theirs and it's obviously um not a high point in the history of of organized labor of of the of the power of labor against capital because all of these all of the experiences that that we have in the labor market seem to to turn us against um against other people and that's that there is a reality to that because of course of all the things that we've been discussing today around the disciplining and undermining power of, of unemployment and, and the current structure of the, of the, the late, even the, the phrase, the labor market, you know, that's, that's, um, that's, that's quite revealing. I mean, any, any way this changes, I mean, like how, how, how do you have a way to change this? Well, that's, that's of course, a, you know, a massive political question, political problem that the, the left doesn't probably today seem kind of probably up to, up to to addressing or solving well indeed i mean i think the only thing i would this kind of just occurs to me but any anything which would put a floor under labor would be good in terms of giving labor greater self-confidence uh to pursue its interests um to pursue its interests extra economically i mean through actual maybe not extra economically but i mean effectively through through some form of militancy right and to not uh treat the labor market as a race to the bottom um and you know that that would probably only be more likely to come through some right-wing populist trying to buy people off and go, you know, we're going to try to throw you a sort of jobs guarantee or throw you a UBI. Um, but actually, I think that would maybe not even be the worst outcome just because of, again, it would provide that sort of uh, the sort of floor under labor to be able to provide the self-confidence to, to pursue its interests. But that's the only way I see that coming from any sort of exogenous development, which isn't just uh, a sudden upsurge in, in labor militancy. Are you, are you a UBI guy now? Is that what you're saying? No, but I'm saying that, you know, I think that, you know, um, some some right wing, some right wing guy trying to some right wing corporatist type trying to buy off workers um, in some desperate and terrible maneuver is actually probably preferable to, to what we have now. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Um, okay, maybe we should uh, leave that there unless we have any other uh, points to make. Thank you all for, for joining us. Uh, thank you all for, for signing up. We're always very happy to have you. Um, and I uh, just wanted to remind you that next time we're discussing Todd McGowan's book on Hegel. Uh, Phil assures me that it's, uh, once again, uh, a riveting read and um, politically pointed and therefore something to read. It's, un it's unputdownable. Well, yeah, yeah, um, and uh, maybe don't be put off by by the by the name Hegel. I guess is uh, is the main takeaway. Anyway, looking forward to uh, discussing that. Looking forward to then interviewing uh, Todd McGowan a little while after that, and uh, of course, looking forward to receiving your questions uh, for us to discuss next time. Uh, once again, if this is something that your friends would like, uh, let them know. Um, maybe it can also be a, a sort of mutually reinforcing process where you're able to discuss it with them. We can all discuss it together, um, and we all get smarter as a consequence. Uh, onwards and upwards. Okay, catch you later. Bye-bye.